So if you would grab a church Bible or your own Bibles and turn to the book of Song of Songs, chapter 3, starting from verse 6. We are week three, I think, into the Song of Songs. And we're coming today to the climax. And I use that word very intentionally. Um, We are looking today at um, a person, and we're going to look at that person from the eyes down to the breasts. And uh, I was tongue-in-cheek with uh, our friends from Yorkshire saying that the church is empty because we're getting to quite a difficult part in Song of Songs. <laughs> and, uh, but this is not X-rated. This is us exploring love, biblical love, love that Scripture teaches time and time and time again and of which Jesus uh, affirmed by saying, by quoting Genesis, when a man shall leave his woman, be united with his wife, and they shall become one, a new flesh. And so we are exploring that which the church have been teaching for since day one and before that in Judaism about marriage, about love between a man and a woman. And we're going to do that through Song of Song. We are doing that through Song of Songs. But before I start praying so that I can just bring all of these thoughts, many of them I'll share, many of them I will not, and some which will just come as I pray. Father, by your Spirit, you'd lead me. Father, by your Spirit, you uh, would accept the praises from our hearts and our minds as we focus in on this. Would you open up Scripture to us? Would you make things come alive? Would this poem, these love songs, uh, speak to us of you um, and of this uh, love between man and woman? May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. There is none like you. And we meet in the name of Jesus. May you be glorified, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So, before we start reading from verse 6, and I'm going to, just so you know, we're going to uh, really focus in from verse 6 in chapter 3 down to verse 7 in chapter 4. But at the very end, I will read all the way to 5 verse 1. So just, so there's no surprises and you know where I'm going with this. That's what we're going to do. And it will be no surprise to you, and I'm sure many of you will agree, that we live in a hypersexualized culture. We're bombarded all the time with messages, with stories about uh, promoting indulgences without any boundaries and without any perimeters. And it's there every single place you go, and it's a free for all. Um, I don't blame this generation, I don't blame the last generation, it is from the very beginning, went through an idea, the evil one depicted as a snake, came to Mary and simply shared an idea with her. That was all that the evil one did. Did God really say that? Questioning God's command, questioning God's character questioning the situation all the evil one was doing was telling a story and today I'm uh, conscious of the biblical story that we should look at and but when we are when I'm watching tv when I watch council tv which isn't a lot uh, because I'm like I stream a lot and watch things 
fast-forward adverts, because adverts are nothing like the adverts you used to have in the 80s and the 90s. Um, tango advert, for instance. Tango advert, genius. But when I'm watching something, um, Miranda will often take the controller, if she's not already got it, and when it comes to the advert, she'll either mute it or she'll turn the channel. Mostly she'll mute it. Because she knows from experience, I'm sitting there going, <sighs> unbelievable. How the heck can you get that in when you're trying to sell me a bank account? And I'll just continue. Because we are being bombarded, even in adverts, to get our business in a bank or to sell oh, anything you want. We are being bombarded by a hypersexualized society. All that, was it the, the watershed hour? That is all out the window because our standards have come down and come down and come down. So Miranda spares me. And that's just a little example of some of your examples that you know that we are living in a hypersexualized society. And therefore, my question is this, what are the community of faith saying into that? What is your story? Is your story a better story? Which is a name of a book which I encourage you to go to buy. A better story. Uh, where is our voice in this hypersexualized society? Are we telling our story? Do we even know our story? We say to our young people, and I've been guilty of this also, we say to our young people, don't have sex until you get married. And our young people may say back to us, okay. Why? And too often our response is, just don't. You'll thank me for it later. Meanwhile, our young people have got hormones that are flying all over the place. They're, they're, they're a height of their physical and their sexual. They just want to explore everything. And all we are saying is, don't without getting into much behind the scenes of why we shouldn't do that. But often we're just silent. Song of Songs is probably one of those books in our churches that have been least explored and taught and preached on. I understand that. I find it the most incredibly difficult book imaginable. And if you could be a fly in the wall watching me in preparation... I go through, I cry, I throw things, I pull my hair, all sorts of things. But what are we saying into it? Where are we getting our biblical understanding of this matter of sex and of marriage? What's been passed down to us? Or do we give advice based on our past experiences, good or bad? We've got a better story to tell. And I think Song of Songs speaks into that. And one of the reasons for picking it. It's passionate. At times, it is erotic. But it's a love poem, I believe, between a man and woman. If you want to go, my ideas of why I don't think it's Solomon's, go and listen to week one. In effect, what I'm saying is, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Let me just put, I wasn't going to tell this, but this is incredible. For a Jewish wedding back then, to have a wedding took a week not that we have, which a Scottish wedding, if you're Scottish, is quite good. But they would have a week of celebrations. Solomon had 700 wives. 
and 300 concubines, but we'll just put them to the side. So if you do 700 times one week, I've done the maths, is there any mathematicians here? How many years is that of wedding celebrations? 13, close. Incredible. Just in celebrating weddings, he spent four, 13, 14 years of his life. He reigned for uh, 40 years. And if you can imagine, if we've given him the benefit of the doubt, before he started to disobey the Lord and take wives of, uh, of convenience of foreign nations for political reasons and no doubt because of uh, his hormones. But if you take that the first few years he was faithful to the Lord, and if you suggest that in the last few years he repented and was faithful to the Lord, let's just take five off each. 30 years of being the king, 13 of those years he was celebrating his own wedding. I don't take this to be Solomon's. Or at the, what I, and, and we won't argue and fight about that because it's, it's not important. But maybe he wrote it at the beginning of his, ministry, of his being king or maybe he wrote it at the end of being king. I don't take that. But uh, I just throw that one in there. I think that's incredible. This is a beautiful love song poem, collection of them, with lots of desires, lots of tensions, lots of beauty. It complements the wider biblical story, the narrative of how the Lord, God Yahweh, has purposefully designed us male and female in the mother's womb, created us as spiritual, moral, physical, sexual creatures. And that sexuality, I believe scripture continues to testify time and time again, is best expressed as the Lord designed. In a faithful, monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. And I intentionally say one man and one woman because we're starting to see marriage partnerships in the States starting to come up. And we're starting to see in the States marrying yourself come up as well. We live in a hyper-sexualized society. What's our story? How can we speak into that? Lovingly, not from a soapbox, but how can we engage? And specifically with our young people, how can we teach them a better story? Here is the story so far. From chapter 1, verse 1 through to chapter 3, verse 5. The couple are attracted to each other. That's a physical attraction, but it's also their character as well. They spend time together. And if you notice, that time is often among the daughters of Jerusalem. So it is public. It isn't private, sordid, hidden away. It's public and in community, even when, and, and I actually see the, the most of up to uh, this part in chapter three, it's mostly the women that's speaking. It's mostly her speaking of her desire, of her desire for her, her lover to come and be with her and all the dangers that that is there because she's full of passion and she wants to be with this man forever. And yet it's always with others in view and it's never spoken about in a darkened room or the back of a, a Lamborghini or something like that. It's nothing like that. They're passionate and that passionate in turn it raises up feelings of inadequacy. Remember she says, um, but my skin is so dark because my, my brothers put me out to look after their vineyards and I'm darkened by the sun. She was feeling vulnerable. And so all of that is in there as well. They're conscious, uh, conscious of the, the, 
the dangers of those desires and they warn others, daughters of Jerusalem, do not raise up the passions of love until the time is right. Something like that, paraphrase. And now, as they come toward their wedding day, that love, those desires for the whole person, person is consummated. So let's read Song of Songs, chapter 3, starting from verse 6, and I'm going to read to chapter 4 and the first part of verse 1. Who is this coming up from the desert? Like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant. Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its post he made of silver, its base of gold, its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior lovingly inlaid by the daughters of Jerusalem. Come out, you daughters of Zion, and look at King Solomon wearing the crown, the crown which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. <laughs> at least I know you're with me, Gap. <laughs> Before I put up the slide, I want to just say this. Some of our translations won't divvy up this way, but from this point, um, from verse 6, verse 6 could be the daughters of Zion, but is most probable the lover. It's the man speaking. NIV doesn't do that, but the New King James probably will, the English Standard Version will, New American Standard probably will as well. But this uh, NIV doesn't do that, but at this point, it is him speaking, and there's good reasons, and I'll come to that, to say that. This is him speaking, not for the first time, but this is a prolonged speech by him. Up until this point, all the passion, all the desire, all of the anxiety, not all of it, but most of it, has been from the woman. Now it's the guy's turn to speak. So who is this? made a mistake there, but that's fine. Chapter 3, verse 7, that, should, that look, mirar, chapter 3, verse 7, is look. In here, there are two looks, we'll come to that, and they are giving us, therefore, two examples. Who is this coming up from the desert? There's a twofold answer to this. The NIV doesn't pick this up. But the New King James does, the English Standard Version does, I'm pretty sure, and the New American Standard, those who are word for word, whereas the NIV is a thought-for-thought -thought Bible on the whole. Not surprisingly, most people, if you read from verse 7 downwards, as we did, they say, this is a detailed description of Solomon's carriage, or it's actually his bed. Solomon, it's, it's the wedding entourage coming up from the desert, from the wilderness, with, with myrrh and smoke and all sorts of things, with mighty men and all of that. So this is Solomon who's making a dramatic entrance. And you can see how it's grand, how it's beautiful, how it's dripping with all sorts of things. But up until this point, 
in this love song. The thing that captures the man's heart is not superficial things like gold, silver, velvet, green, and all of that sort of thing. It is the woman. That is what captures his heart. So that's a very important thing to say. Solomon's bed is enhanced by no fewer than 60 bodyguards. You've got that in uh, verse 7 and 8. Um, it's, it's extraordinary magnificent with all sorts of gold and, and, and cedar from Lebanon and all of that sort of stuff making it up. It's a well-loved communal bed. And what I mean by that is this, and commentators wax lyrical about this, its post are made of silver, its base of gold, its seat was upholstered with purple. Its interior lovingly inlaid by the daughters of Jerusalem. And commentators are saying, yes, it's the marriage bed, but it's been the marriage bed that has been well used. 700 wives, 300 concubines. King Solomon spread his love about there. And here, in this superficial vision of of the wedding day, with all its pomp and grandeur and strength and might and statement and all of that, throws in there as well, yep, but it is not pure, it is not holy, it is not weighted, but it has spread its love because it's been upholstered lovingly inlaid by the daughters of Jerusalem. The bed, Solomon's bed here, rather than the maiden, is the focus of this look from verse 7 through to verse 11. It's a glorious wedding. And we know that because um, grooms change from t-shirt and jeans into kilt and brides change from t-shirt and jeans into white dress. And we, we know how we can look at a person on the rehearsal. Well, I certainly do. I see a couple in the rehearsal and, and then I see them on their day. And it's quite a transformation. We've got a transformed scene here, a glorious scene of a procession, yet this is not what the man is passionate about. This is not what we are meant to be passionate about, men of God. And it's certainly not what about marriages about. Although I hear time and time again at St. Johnston where players will say to me, Rev, when the time comes, will you marry me and my wife? Me and my wife. Will you marry me and the girlfriend? And I says, what's stopping you? Oh, she wants to wait until we have enough money. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. She's got this big idea of what it's going to be. Many people spend a fortune on this. But that's really not what the wedding is all about. I know one couple who are still paying for their wedding day five years later. Nor is about acquiring safety, because marriage isn't a safe place. With bodyguards and all of that. And neither is it about owning designer beds. Although if you've watched the Beckham documentary on Netflix, there's a lot of that going on, thrones, etc. Rather, and the NIV does not pick this up at all. But if you've got an ESV, a New King James Version, or a King James Version, and a New American Standard Version, you will see in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1, it gives you the second picture Behold, look. But all, and now I've written in my NIV, NIV in pencil, behold. For some reason it misses it out. And, and it's, it's wrong to miss it out. Furthermore, who is this coming up from the desert? 
This is in the, um, it's the feminine singular, that's the word I was after. Who is this? When you read that in the Spanish, when you read that in the English, whatever it mean, may be, it isn't neutral, it isn't masculine, it is feminine. So the question right at the beginning by the man is, who is this woman coming up? Then you get an example of Solomon and all the pomp and all the thrills and all the communal uh, lifestyle, etc., etc., and and how this was supposedly his glorious day when his mother placed a crown on him, and etc. How can 700 weddings be your glorious day? That cannot be his testimony except if it's at the beginning or when he was in repentance at the end. This is, I believe, the young man saying, look, here is one example of what love is. And now he comes to the true desire of his heart from uh, chapter four downwards. The one who has captured his heart, the one, the focus of his desire is simply the maiden, is simply the woman. And and scripture testifies to this. And we're going to now come to this part and it is something from head to toe. It is a woman. She is fully woman. And as a man, he is fully attracted and desires her. And he is speaking all the time at this point. So let's go through some of the things. I'll read it and then we'll go through some of the things of what uh, they possibly could signify. So again, behold, how beautiful you are, my darling. Chapter four, verse one. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. And uh, on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. And until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. So what do some of these things signify? I've got them up there. Doves. Your eyes behind your veil are like doves, are doves. What are doves? But shy. What would the doves signify? Peace, innocence, beauty. Her eyes are beautiful. They are peaceful. They're shy. And they are even behind a veil, shy. And that veil all the way through scripture always signifies matrimony. That moment of being veiled for something quite special. So even through the veil, this man who's desired this woman and now has her uh, before him, soon to be his bride, looks at her eyes and says, how beautiful are your eyes, they're like doves. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. And your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. How the heck am I going to get something out of that? Bouncing, descending. I just see big curls. I see hair that has been let down that has 
bouncing and, and signify health and, and signify something that is well nurtured. Um, he, he doesn't mention any smell, but I can Im imagine the smell, the incense, even from her hair. Um, some vosine or whatever it may be. <laughs> Your teeth. Can I just say, see, when we were young guys in Queen's Park Baptist Church and we were not listening to Edwin Gunn, incredible preacher preaching, this is what we used to pass around to one another uh, for a laugh. We'd write it down in notes and send it to one another along the pews. That aside, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Again, uniformity, beautiful, all of that type of thing. But can you not see if he's mentioning her teeth that she's smiling? Here on her wedding day, nervous, anticipating lots that she may be. But her eyes are bright and her teeth are being, uh, she's showing her teeth, she's shown her excitement. And there is no shame. She's smiling and there's no shame because nothing has happened up to this point. Her eyes show no shame because she's innocent. She's experienced the temptation up to this point and she's remained true to her word to flee from the passions of love until the right moment. And her lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. What colour are pomegranates? Reddish. So for me... I'm taking here, I'm sure there's lots more to be said, but I'm taking here that she's blushing. On this day of, again, the excitement of potentially thinking what's going to happen next, she's blushing. And even though songs can, possibly rightly, should be described as erotic in places, you see here that his desire for his beloved is in her face. All of this I have not got beyond here yet. And you can see what he sees already. Even under a veiled face, you can see what he sees. And you can go on even further about just what that may signify. And I've given just some examples that I possibly think. And again, this is in stark contrast to our pornographic obsessed society. Where everything must be uncovered where everything must be revealed. Songs celebrates something much deeper. It celebrates the deep allure of the concealed and of the hidden. It celebrates that. It promotes that. And I therefore, my question is this, when was the last time that we sat, and maybe those days are gone for some of us. And therefore, you can think of it hypothetically happening. But for those of us who are still in this scenario, when was the last time we sat with our young people and we suggested to them that modesty is ultimately the most attractive thing? When was the last time we did that? Or do we just remain silent? And so he looks at his love, his heart's desire, and his eyes continue 
downwards like a good man. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. You know, it made me think, as soon as I read this, often God spoke to Israel and said, you are a stiff-necked people. You are stubborn. And the Lord came against them at that time because they were a stiff-necked, stubborn people. Here we have the exact opposite. Here we have strength, elegance, confidence. She is holding her head up. She's not looking down her nose at people. It could be that she's wearing ornaments and that's where the shields come from. Maybe that's ornaments not of um, where you have often in the New Testament where women are um, encouraged not to overstep the mark in terms of how they are dressing, which must have been so in line with the culture. Here it's celebrated. She's got ornaments on and their shields, their stra- her, she can hold all of that and she holds it well. She is a fortified city who has listened to her own counsel when time and time again up until this point she says, do not arouse or awaken love too soon. She has not. And now in her wedding day she stands there proud. In a good way, confident, not stiff-necked. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. And breasts obviously signify fertility. But have you ever tried to catch a deer? I know Steve just after catching a deer. You need strategy to catch a deer. You can't just jump right in there. You can't go trooping through the forest and expect a deer just to fall into your lap. Because they're graceful, because they're shy, because they're swift. And she is the desire, she is the object of his desire. And it is very good. And now that point of desire is about to be realized in the scriptures. Celebrate that. And up until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense, which really are just her breasts again. All beauty, you are my darling. There is no flaw in you. Up until this point, she has often said to him, go away. She, she, she has ran away from him. She's hidden in the clefts of mountain. Her, her garden was locked up. All of that. But that were the, that, those were the early points in their courtship where so easily they could overstep the mark. And we see in Scripture the maiden waiting, waiting until love and the passions of love should be consummated and that is happening now. And he says, you are beautiful. All beauty, you are my darling. There is no flaw in you. Which again counters what she felt about herself only a chapter ago where she doubted her own beauty, she doubted her own worth, and she hid from him. Now in full glory, at that moment where everything was going to uh, come to a fulfillment, he says to her, you are beautiful. You are full. There is none like you, fearfully and wonderfully made. So Solomon's idea, look, is all about large amounts of gold. It's all about uh, human stuff. It's, it's um, 
uh, superficial. The spotlight actually in that first part from uh, verse 7 through to 11 was all on Solomon. Look at me, I'm being crowned with my mother, by my mother. Look at all of what I have got. And again, thinking of our culture, it's often too much about us. We distort the idea of what marriage is. We distort what the idea of, of intimacy is. We're swimming in these waters and we need to be careful. I need to care for my sons to lead them in a way in which they, in turn, flee from such things. So desire which, that which is of the Lord and not that which is of the cultural waters that they swim in. And our daughters, who for many guys who have been raised in this culture, who swam in this culture, just see our daughters as things, things of beauty, yes, but things to be unveiled, to be uncovered, to be tried before there's any purchase. We need a better story into that. And yet in contrast, from chapter 4, verse 1, we have the man's gaze which points directly away from himself. So we honour, we love as Christ has loved the church, our wives. And the, the focus here is entirely on the other, on his beloved, on the maiden, on the Shulamite. His delight is in the whole person, not just her body. His delight is in her eyes, in her face, in her mouth. What she says to him, she's entirely without flaw. And guarantee, none of us are perfect. But there's something about looking at your spouse and just seeing things that other people can't see. Knowing things that other people don't know, but seeing things and delighting in that. Those little things that may annoy others, but to you are a delight. And you know the fuller story. And it's over a long period of time and it's been tested and it's been found to be good. To him, she is entirely without fault. He approaches the nakedness um, which is about to happen and he approaches it with tenderness, respect, honouring and serving, which again is the biblical model. And I finish just with this. I finish with the, the, the climax of, of Song of Songs. And it says, come with me from Lebanon, from far away, my bride, come with me from Lebanon. Decide from, descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of the lepers. Come with me away from all those places where you are hard to reach and even in harm's way. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. The first time he speaks of her as his bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. The second time he calls her his bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride, third time. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. 
You're a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You're a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloe, and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well flowering water, steaming down from Lebanon. Perfect bride, ready, presented, glorious in every way possible. And here we have it. Awake, north wind, she says, and come, come, south wind. Blow in my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad, because I am ready. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. And he says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh and my spices. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. We've been given a glimpse into something quite beautiful. Not for some sordid, erotic, fly-in-the-wall nonsense, but as a story, a part of a larger biblical story of marriage, of love, of waiting. Now, I say all this because some of us have not, through no fault of our own or through our own fault, and that to us may wound us. There is forgiveness in Jesus' name. It may scar us. There is healing in Jesus' name. And some of us may have been given different counsel or given different counsel. We need to come under the word of God. We need to search it. We need to know it so that in a culture of stories, we can with confidence speak a better story to our young people who need us to speak truth. And when they desire and feel something quite different, to love them, to journey with them in truth and in grace. And that's a difficult fine balance because sometimes they may not want to journey with us on that but it's the, the road less travelled, especially in our sex-obsessed culture. But I believe it's the way of Jesus, and it's a way of life, and it's a way of wholeness, and it's an image, an illusion, a hint of what it will be like in the end when we, the bride of Christ, will be united with him, our groom, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, what is of me, I pray that it would fall on deaf ears. What is of you, I pray that it would go deep and there would be a desire in a heart to know your word and to know you through your word much better. May the Spirit bring enlightenment. May Jesus be high and lifted up. We ask in his name. Father, if we have not, if this has not been our story, either because we did not know or for or we, we did not want to know, or whether that was stolen from us, I pray that your healing, which is in your wings, we would experience that healing. That restoration, I thank you that in Christ Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins, 
and they are removed as far as the east is from the west. And for such things he has died for. Would you restore us fully in heart, mind, body, spirit? May we become increasingly like Christ. Continue the work of salvation that you're doing in our lives. And Father, I pray that you would touch our mind and our heart, but our mind and our heart so that we would understand more of your word and be able to tell that story to others in a way which is honoring to you, to those who are listening, and that you would be glorified. In the name of Jesus, I ask him for your glory. Amen.